Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. All right, let me invite us to open our Bibles to 1 Peter. This morning we're going to be reading and studying verses 18 through 22, the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Peter writes there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Please, by the power of your spirit, And through the greatness of your mercy towards us, you come yourself and speak to us. Manifest the truth of your word and all of its saving and sanctifying power in our hearts and in our lives. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've all come across things that make us do a double take. Things that make us go, wait, what? You hear that Ian's significant other, Scarlett, entered and won a boxing match at a Christian college, no less. And you go, wait. What? You see Suzanne drive up in that awesome truck of hers, and you're like, okay. And then you see her drive up the next week in an equally awesome Jeep, and you're like, who is this lady? And then the next thing you know, she rides up in an equally awesome motorcycle, and you're like, wait, what? And this happens to us as we read along and hear from God's word also. 
We come to uh, Enoch foregoing death in Genesis 5, and uh, angels mating with women in Genesis 6, and a witch conjuring up Samuel's ghost in 1 Samuel 28, or John saying the thrice holy king of Isaiah 6 is the pre-incarnate Christ, or Paul saying the Israelites drank from a mobile rock in the desert named Jesus. And we go, wait, what? What did they just say? This morning, uh, Peter might outdo all in unveiling for us his wait what gospel. Understandable as it was to his original audience, right, we hear parts of it, and we kind of do a double take. By the time we come to the end of verse 18, it's like we've entered a portal into sort of this this strange new world. In many ways, we're, we're out of our depth. So Martin Luther, the old reformer, this is what he said about this passage. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) Here's what that means for us. That in working through a text like this, humility and charity have to lead the way. Now, we should pursue clarity, and we should take firm stances, especially on the main ideas here. But to be sure, some things in this text are less clear and more contested than others, and that's where we need maturity, really, to, to rein us in and help us to hold some things, some thoughts, more loosely than others. But, to that main idea of our text, Peter simply means for these embattled believers to be encouraged in Christ. Okay? He means for us to be encouraged as sojourners and exiles by the exaltation and sovereignty of Jesus. That's the big idea. That's the big idea. He's urged us so far to the battlefront here of the Christian life, and now as we do good and perhaps suffer for it, he wants to encourage us amid that battle that the war has already been won and that our Lord Jesus is, in fact, Lord of all. So let's come to it here, starting with what seems to be the clearest thing in the passage, which is the unique purpose of Christ's suffering. Look with me at verse 18. You'll see that Peter writes there that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is one of the Bible's great gospel verses. And as we open it, we do need to see that it's given as, a, as grounds or as a support for what went just before it in verse 17, where Peter continues to call us at cost to do God's kind of good in this world. We're to be living lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're to be following in the footsteps of Christ. We're to be submissive but steadfast. We're to be bold but gentle. We're to be public but peaceable. Right? We're to be brothers and sisters who love each other earnestly and our enemies very generously. We're to be self-sacrificial do-gooders, urged along by the cross of Christ and the living hope that we have in Him. If we're going to suffer, let it be for a life that manifests not sin, but the Savior of sinners. Such suffering, Peter has told us, belongs to the good life, 
It leads to God's blessing. It will be vindicated by God. And he steps back from all that now, speaks to this original audience and to us, and he says, do you have a hard time believing that? If so, don't. Christ, Christ also suffered. Now, Peter is going somewhere further with that. He's got resurrection and ascension and victory and sovereignty in mind. But first, just this. For Christian sufferers, you have the company of Christ. You're in the company of Christ. Are you suffering for doing God's kind of good? Whatever that looks like. Peter's saying, it's all good. Christ also suffered. Christ did too. You can't be upon more solid ground with God than the path that was trodden by Jesus. And so just keep at it. Keep following Christ, whatever the cost may be. But now, as Peter shows, that's where the likeness ends. You see, Christ's suffering for us is is now abruptly distinguished from our sufferings for Him so that we should never be able to begrudge Him as if we suffered too much for Him. Or maybe in our minds, even more than He did for us. I want you to hear something, church. Listen, Jesus alone sufficiently suffered the wrath of God To save us from our sins. See? Christ also suffered, yes. But how did He suffer? Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, that uniquely belongs to Jesus. Not to any one of us. We cannot atone for our sins. You need to hear that much less the sins of others. So let's be clear. Neither our labors for Christ nor our sufferings for Him are in any way atoning for our sins. That's not how Christianity works. We are not our own saviors. We are great sinners, separated from God and without hope in the world. And this is what separates the biblical gospel from every other human hope as true hope instead of false hope. Christ did not come into the world just to be exemplary for saints. He came into the world to save and sanctify sinners as only Christ could and only Christ would. And that's Peter's new track here in verse 18. The vicarious Suffering of Jesus. Jesus did not suffer for His sins. He didn't have any. Jesus suffered for our sins. He was the righteous one who suffered for unrighteous billions. As the Lamb of God, God put Him forward as our substitute. So this morning, just search your life. Search your memory bank. Maybe just go back to yesterday. Search your yesterday. And deep down you know this, as God does know it perfectly, we all deserve to suffer the justice 
of the holy God for our sins against Him forever. And there's no way in us to get around that. Our only hope is in the mercy of God towards us in the cross of Jesus. That's it. It's what Jesus suffered for us. I just want us to note then with joy that what He suffered for us was absolutely sufficient. Do you see that here? He suffered once for sins because once was enough. Isn't that wonderful? Enough for what? Maybe help with the wonder here. Enough to make a full atonement for you before God. Enough to experience the wrath of God against you in full and just as fully satisfy it. Enough to win this wondrous word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God did not call him back for another round. He didn't require anything extra of Jesus after the cross. He didn't have to because what Jesus did was enough. Once was enough. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient payment for your sins. What the blood of bulls and goats could never take away, the blood of the eternal Son of God can and did. And in this way, the way was made for sinners to be reconciled to God. That's the great goal of the gospel. This everlasting reunion to God. That's the prize of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. When it comes to our salvation, that's been Peter's highest end and joy. It's not just heaven. It's not just heaven. It's not just the ideas of our inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as glorious as those descriptors are. You take God out of the equation of that inheritance, and that inheritance is a dump. Might as well be hell. God makes heaven, heaven. And indeed, He's the very taste of heaven now while we wait upon this earth. And none but Christ, Peter says, could bring you to Him. None but Christ could reconcile Him to you. And so, in a verse... We're given much in the way of Christ's glory as our Savior. There's His sufficiency and His exclusivity in being the substitutionary sacrifice that binds us to God both for time and for eternity. Such was the unique purpose of Christ's suffering and we need to rejoice in this. Let us rejoice. And let us rejoice again because This purpose of Christ is a purpose that He has achieved. 
You see, as Peter continues, he says, Christ was not only put to death in the flesh, if he stayed dead, there's no salvation, it's not achieved, but Peter goes on and he says, but then also, and critically, Jesus was what? Made alive in the Spirit. And while the main thing there is quite clear, it's with that last phrase, that made alive in the Spirit, that we begin to sort of spiral into Peter's renowned obscurity. Before we take that plunge, let's talk main thing. We see here, as we said on Easter Sunday, that Peter affirms Jesus really did die on the cross. He really did die on the cross. He didn't swoon, pass out, and then later recover. His heart stopped for a few days. And then he rose from the dead. And so what Peter's doing is he's reminding these suffering Christians, listen, it did not look very good for Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. But the cross was not the dead end for Jesus. It was his pathway Okay? So again, even when it's costly, even when it hurts, even when it's ugly, you have no better path, no more solid ground in this world than the way that Jesus went. We see in Christ that neither suffering nor death have the final word. Christ has the final word. And His word assures us the way of the cross, listen, the way of the cross is going to be vindicated by God. It will end in victory, however much it looks like defeat in the moment. In fact, it is the victory march on the way to the immediate and gracious presence of our great God. If that's not how, you thought about your trials for Jesus. We need to adopt God's thoughts ahead of our own this morning. The kind of life that follows hard after Christ and does not grow weary in well-doing despite wilting opposition, if only to proclaim His glory to all comers, that is a strike-up-the-band kind of life. That's a victory formation kind of life. That's death defeated and life without end. That's the good life. And the question for us right now is, are we living that kind of life? Well, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and take the deep dive down the wonderful wormhole that is the rest of this passage (laughs) through verse 21 as we come to the unusual proclamation of Christ's achievement. Peter says that having been put to death in the flesh, again, Jesus was made alive in the Spirit and that in that state, verse 19, you look there, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. (laughs) 
And so the first challenge we face regards the timing of all this. Okay, When Peter says that Christ was made alive in the Spirit, some take it to mean that Christ made this unusual proclamation in the three days between his death and his resurrection. That he died, then in his Spirit, now free from the sin and the death it bore for us, he descended to these spirits, whoever they are, into prison, whatever that is, and in view of his pending resurrection, preached his victory over them. And I'll admit it, that's how I first read it. <laughs> I don't know what that means about me. Maybe I just identify with the coolness of Jesus pulling a Babe Ruth, you know? Or Steph Curry, you know? Like shooting it, ball leaves his hands and he just turns around and walks the other way and drains it. I do think this is a plausible take. And for what it's worth, it does actually enjoy wide historical support. However, the dominant conservative take on this is that made alive in the spirit refers to resurrection. In which case, this proclamation occurs after Christ has actually been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's been exalted. And I'm drawn to the arguments here as well, such that in the end, I'm good with either and content to stick with the big idea. So here we go. Big idea. That once God had vindicated Jesus, once Christ had the victory, he went and he got in the face of some very specific enemies. He went, Peter says, to the spirits in prison. And he set up a pulpit and he preached one of those, if I could have been anywhere, this is on the list sermons. And I think from what we've covered and where we're headed, the subject is, is pretty clear. Jesus preached his victory. He preached his victory over and against all, I'm tipping my hand here, Satan's power. He preached, the work is finished. I have conquered. My people are my people. Your power is undone and the throne of God is secure. It's mine, not yours. Now, what is not so clear, another one of those, wait, what? Concerns the audience. Who are the spirits in prison? And again, interpretations abound here. But we'll just go forward lightly with mine, unless you want to be here through till the discipleship quarterly at 6 p.m. I understand these spirits not to be human spirits, but to be angelic spirits. I take spirits in prison to refer to the fallen angels who disobeyed God in the days of Noah, which you can check out in Genesis chapter 6 later on this afternoon. And two good questions follow, okay? Two good questions follow. Why do I land there? And why would Jesus feel it necessary to proclaim his victory to these demonic principalities and powers? <laughs> okay? What's the point? So, I land on fallen angels because I think Peter clarifies this for us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So Peter writes another letter in the Bible, 2 Peter, you go there, chapter 2, verse 4, you'll find Peter saying this, that God 
did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus or hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he immediately connects it in that Second Peter passage. He immediately connects it, as in our text, to the days of Noah and the flood. And while there's more, there is also the end of our text, if you look at verse 22, uh, where Peter has Christ's sovereignty over what? Angels, principalities, powers in view. And if that's in view there, at the end of our passage, it's probably also in view here with the spirits in prison. So then, why would Jesus proclaim his victory to demons? And those of Genesis 6 in particular. Well, however novel it may be to us, it's simple really. Angelic evil is behind all human evil. And we say, wait. What? It sounds strange in our ears, doesn't it? But it's everywhere taught in the Bible. Why did we fall? Because an angel fell and came and brought that rebellion into our hearts. Why are we born at enmity with God? Why do we oppose the truth? Why are we marked by disobedience? Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're following around this prince of the power of the air as sons and daughters of disobedience until we're converted. Why can't people see the glory of Christ and the grace of the gospel? Why aren't they turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus? Because there's a little G God of this world who's keeping their eyes blind. With whom is Jesus mainly doing war in the Gospels? One way or another, all the answers involve the sinful activity of angelic beings. It does not cancel out our moral responsibility as human beings, but it does pull back the veil on our lack of moral sovereignty. At one level, Behind our fall, behind our ruin, our unbelief, our sinning, our suffering, our dying, what would be our wailing forever, there are principalities and powers at play. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was what? To convince the world he did not exist. This is about exposure. And with it, a lot of encouragement. If we can be patient with it for right now, though, we can't add this to Christ's rationale. Jesus had a promise to keep. Do you remember his interaction? If you go read through the Gospels, do you remember his interaction with a man in the synagogue who had the unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1? Or the garrison demoniac where there's like a couple thousand demons in this one guy in Mark chapter 5? In both cases, they identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. They identified Jesus as the Christ, apparently with a promise to keep, a work, a mission to accomplish. Do you remember what they said to him? They identified him and they immediately go this. Have you now come to destroy us? 
And here, it appears, is Jesus' answer. You bet I have. In due time. And from this then, it seems Peter moves us to an unexpected preview or prefigurement of Christ's cosmic victory achieved. He locates, you see there, the disobedience of these angels in the days of Noah. When, if you look at verse 20, it says, God's patience waited while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now in these words, Peter's drawing up a likeness between his reader's present situation and that of Noah in the days of his generation, his society. And so typifying his times, Noah's generation played, apparently, follow the leader behind wicked angels. Again, go read Genesis 6 this afternoon. It's weird too, but just go with me here. Do you know what it looked like for human beings to follow after fallen angels? Eating and drinking and marrying, just living life day to day like any normal person, completely apart from any thought of God. Wasting their lives. That's what it looked like. Partying, pleasuring, not repenting. Though Noah was apparently preaching to them this entire time, they were not believing what he was saying, they were mocking him. They had no mind to their souls, they had no apprehension of their sins. They had no sense of their peril. They had no appreciation of the ark. They didn't help Noah. They harmed him. They did not hop into God's vessel of salvation. They tried poking holes in it. They doubted. They doubled down. They found it unnecessary. And listen, it was not a few. It was not a few. It was only a few that actually got into the ark. It was the whole world that reviled it. They talk about perspective for Peter's audience and for us who feel like this minority in this raging and rebelling world. Think, just think, if there were only eight Christians out of eight billion people in the world today. Might you be discouraged? Peter's working against that here. So he says, hey, remember Noah. Remember Noah. Recall how he believed God and how he alone built the ark and how he preached to his generation and how he did this for a hundred years and how after all of it, only ate his family were saved. And recall again how all the while the rest of his society heard but did not hear. How they saw but did not see. 
lest they should turn, get into the ark, and be saved. And recall how God's patience, that great attribute of God, waited in those days. How justice was very much alive, but being deferred. So that surely Noah was tempted amid the abuses to grow weary in well-doing. Will God, will I be vindicated at last? And then recall the outcome of his steadfastness. Wonder what the world thought at that first drop of rain. After the eight enduring ones had gone into the ark and God himself has shut and sealed the door. At God's time, patience passed, judgment came, and the believers, all eight of them, were saved. While the smart, and the cultured, and the settlers. Those who had made those believers a laughing stock. Well, their laughing, I have to imagine, came to a screeching halt. In the day that God vindicated His own. It's an historical preview of salvation for all of God's cross-bearers. That even when the whole world seems against you and you are beaten sorely by it, God is in control. People, principalities, powers, they're all subject to God. That was true in Noah's day. Peter's saying it's true in my day and no less in our own. And so we can, in the full assurance of faith, keep on following after Jesus, entrusting ourselves to Him who ultimately judges justly. You see how it's coming together in Peter, right? I hope. Beloved, it only appeared as if the rebel spirit had long won the day. But the victory of the flood and the ark that survived it looked ahead to the victory of God in Christ. A victory, Peter is saying, that's now achieved, which Jesus in absolute total awesomeness took occasion to preach to those very same principalities in Noah's day. You thought the flood-defying ark was a mighty blow to your plans? Well, have a look at the empty tomb and these nail-scarred hands. Oh, beloved, keep at the cross. Live at the empty tomb and you will have encouragement to endure for Christ. You'll see victory there over everything that's opposed to Him and to you. And while you're there, Don't stray that far from your baptism. It is the undeniable picture of Christ's achievement in you and for you. Look at verse 21. 
Look at verse 21. Peter writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, we come upon at least one more. Wait. What? It is clear that whatever we make of baptism, Peter viewed it as Christianity critical. You have a hard time saying, however, we, however you understand it, you have a hard time saying baptism now saves you without baptism being Christianity critical. It doesn't seem a second or third order doctrine for Peter. Uh, the least we can say is he saw it being tied to the gospel, some way vital to salvation, and mission critical for enduring in the truly Christian life. That's the least we can say here. So we do well to pay attention to what Peter has to say. He's just moved freely from the floodwaters to Christian baptism. You see in the verse, he says they correspond. The one is a type of the other. And so we have to understand the type in order to understand the fulfillment, or what's called the antitype. So again, the flood through which the eight went by the ark was at the same time a judgment and a salvation. A judgment and a salvation. It separated those who took God at His word from the unbelieving world around them. It was a show of divine justice and grace. It was a show of divine victory and sovereignty. It was an event Noah could look back on as his life went forward in faith and its trials and be reminded, God wins. And God has won. And I am one with Him. So victory is mine. And Peter says, now that Christ has come, and decisively one, there's a new picture of this called baptism. Administered correctly, baptism publicly depicts the cosmic victory of Jesus in a person's soul. And now this is where we need to go slow. Because Peter says baptism now saves us. And so in true wait what fashion, we need to do some digging. What does Peter mean that baptism saves us? I just say, he doesn't mean that baptism saves us. <laughs> okay, losing all credibility. How's that for an about face? Okay. We just need to clarify. Beloved, Peter's clear that baptism is not the ark. Okay? We've already seen this in verse 18, and throughout the entire letter, Christ is the ark. He underwent God's judgment against us, and He then brings us safely through it to God. And baptism 
is the picture that that's occurred in your life. That you're in Jesus as the eight were in the ark and that you have thus been saved from wrath. And Peter makes this even more clear by way of his qualifications here, doesn't he? He says, how again does baptism save us? And essentially his answer is, not as this, but as this. Not as a bath, but as a sign. Not without personal faith in the risen Christ, but as an outward symbol of a new inner reality. Peter's saying that baptism saves us strictly as it is adjoined to this appeal to God for a good conscience on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see that? So the act of baptism, the mere act of baptism, does not save us. There's no regenerative power in it. There's no magical formula in the baptismal waters. But it is part and parcel with salvation and that it's the publishing of our faith in the risen Christ who has saved us. It's marked us out as those who are God's saved people. Indeed, it's made us the visible heirs of Christ's victory. Isn't that what Peter's been wanting? For the church to be visible, publicly? Baptism is the beginning of that. It's you and your faith in Christ going public, becoming a visible follower of Christ. So, for all the clouds around it, I think this is a clear text in favor of what's called believer's baptism. That only those who have personally believed God and gotten into the ark of Christ should then, as an undeniable picture of it, go through, under, and out of the floodwaters of Christian baptism. And if you have, I think this is where Peter's point is, if you have, like Noah, you have a precious event to recall when the good life, with all of its built-in weight, seems too heavy to bear. Your baptism has a utility to it. Your baptism, picturing your union with this cosmically victorious Christ, preaches to you, you're one of His beloved disciples. You're one of Christ's. You've been saved from wrath to inherit grace and glory. You've been separated from the world. You're God's elect exile. And when that gets hard, know this. God knows about it. Jesus has won. And you're in Him so that you too, as Noah's eight, will eventually, ultimately come out on top of the floodwaters. You're going to come through judgment and be saved. No doubt about it. Your baptism preaches that to you. That brings us finally back to some normalcy. With the unrivaled power of Christ's sovereignty. And really, this has been Peter's aim throughout. It's to help God's embattled do-gooders to endure in it by seeing the ascendant trajectory of Christ's existence. How though he willingly subjected himself 
even to death on a cross, He's now, as Peter closes, verse 22, you look there, gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been what? Subjected to Him. Wow. So He subjected Himself to everything for the sake of our salvation. And now in His exaltation, everything is subjected to Him. You see it? The cross, beloved, was the way to the crown. And not just any crown, but now Jesus is sat and established upon the throne of God. He's established atop all creation as the King of kings and only absolute sovereign. And so, dear church, over dissident spouses and unjust masters and anti-Christian emperors and fallen angels and the devil and any and every person in power that wrongly vilifies you, there is the risen and reigning Lord Jesus and He loves you and that's all you need to know for your encouragement in the way, in the way of the cross. My son likes to wrestle with me now. Like it's some preteen rite of passage. That he can get me to budge. And sometimes he does. And then, because I'm too prideful to let him do it, I have to crumple him up like a cheap lawn chair. And so we did this the other day. And after he'd had enough, I looked him in the eyes and I told him, all that daddy power, it loves and cares for you. It's for you. And just think then, I told him, how secure you are in the power of Jesus who's seated upon the throne of God. Nothing in all creation can overcome you if you are in Christ. In the way of the cross, you may be crumpled up like a cheap lawn chair as Jesus was. But that's only for now. And it's ultimately a sign of victory. A victory that sure as Jesus lives and reigns belongs to you. The cross precedes the crown. Keep following after Jesus. That's how God's elect exiles prove also to be His eternal conquerors. Unbelieving friend, Jesus died once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. He's your only hope. You don't want Jesus as your Lord and Judge. You don't want that. You want Him as your Lord and Savior. The flood is coming. Don't care what you think about it. It's coming. But there is an ark. There is an ark 
So don't hesitate. Don't lounge around. Don't waste your life. Don't go on as you normally have been or would. Run to Jesus now. Get in to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. He will save you. If you do that this morning, please come and let me or one of us know about it. We'd love to talk to you about it. Beloved, in the end, be encouraged by Peter's wait what? Gospel. To endure in the word of God and the way of Christ. No matter the trials, no matter the authorities, no matter our numbers, eight. (laughs) No matter our numbers. However, beaten, beleaguered, and few, keep on believing, keep on preaching, keep on living out the saving grace of our crucified, now exalted King of Kings. He is worthy of that. And He is on the throne of God. And by His sovereign power, overflowing as it is for us in love, as you can see in your baptism, listen, we too are going to make it all the way home to Him. The victory is sure. So be encouraged. Let's pray together. Thank you so much, Lord, for Your Word. It's my hope and prayer that I've been able to be true to it. We want to be faithful in what we draw out of the Scriptures. We're not wanting to put anything into them, but just draw out of them what you have for us. So please, confirm the truth of your Word by working mightily in our hearts now. Encourage every single one of your people. Save the lost. Sanctify the found. We ask it for your glory, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen.